Well, Lord willing, we will finish up chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians today. We will be looking at verses 6 through 10, that great verse 10, which 10 through 16, rather. And that great verse 10, which is very famous, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I'll be considering that text in the following verse, verses today. Uh, we will read the entire chapter 7 to get the context because I'll be referring back to what it says earlier. So starting at 2 Corinthians 7, first verse to the last verse. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with all comfort in all our afflictions. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, your, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As, is, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss to us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, not for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but for the, in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you. For whatever boast I made about him to you, I made a made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for, for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider today this example of godly grief and his statement about worldly grief, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive these things, encourage us, and help us, Lord, to grow in our knowledge of you and our practice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we actually talked about verse 9 last week, and verse 9 and verse 10 are, of course, directly connected as he's talking about joy. Actually, verse 12 and beyond in verse 9, talking about his joy and his joy about their situation, about their repentance, and about grieving them. And he brings up as scriptures sometimes do, a universal truth in the context of something that's happening. So there was this great sin in Corinth. The, the people had 
perhaps even refused to follow what Paul commanded them to do in his first letter to them. He wrote a second letter, which we don't have, and is sometimes called the harsh letter. And now again, he's writing them saying, you know, I, did, I grieved you by that. And yes, I regretted it, but I don't regret it. And then he comes to this universal truth. Godly grief produces repentance. It leads to salvation and is a very good thing. And that's why he's grateful that he was able to grieve them because he grieved them into repentance. Leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. And we need to think about that for a little bit. I know many um, ministers, when they get to this point, have two or three sermons on that verse. Uh, We're going to put it in its context and finish it more quickly. I don't need to spend a lot of time talking about repentance unto life. But we want to look at the concept of grief here, things that grieve us. Now, what he's talking about here is not the grief that comes from being sick or being injured or a natural disaster, but the grief that comes through sin, mostly through our own sin. As in this context, he's talking about the sin of the church and the sin of an individual. But he's mostly looking at the sin of the church and his call to the church to you know, see their sin as what it is and repent of it and move forward in the right manner. So first, I think we should look at worldly grief. He says worldly grief produces death. And that's true. It can produce both the first death, you know, dying of our body, but also the second death being cast into the lake of fire. And that grief leads to both of those. Worldly grief coming from the consequences of sin. We, we grieve the punishment from, yes, the government, from the people who we've grieved or the people who are offended by our sin, and, of course, from God. We're grieved when we have to pay restitution. A person who has you know, to, to give back in the Bible, it would be four times. Today, it's up to the law to decide, and it's usually zero. But if you're forced to pay restitution, you may have to do that, and you may grieve about it. Uh, If you do things like speed or drive recklessly, your insurance goes skyrocketing, and you may grieve about that. You may grieve about other harms that come to you through your sin, you know, the the hurt of your health, the losses you suffered, um, the loss of worldly things. Remember John in John 15, 1 John 2, 15 and 17 says, well, he describes the world, the things we're not supposed to love, and he lists the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. Things like riches and honors and property and pleasures in them, we lose those through our sin sometimes. We have to pay money. We have to give up something that we, we, we like. And if you think about this, you know, it's a consequence often of sin, resentment, anger, uh, envy, covetousness. All of these things can harm us in the ways like it, it alienates us from others. The people we've sinned against or the people who hate that kind of sin will feel they don't want to associate with us. And now we've broken relationships. We've harmed our relationships, not just at home or with our friends, but at work, we could lose jobs or be denied promotions. No, I don't want to promote that guy. He's no good for that girl. And so we have consequences, and those consequences bring grief to us. And really think about how the sin affects you and how it affects those around you, yes. But when we're looking at worldly grief, worldly grief is more about me, how the sin affects me, how it's hurting me. And things like anger and envy and covetousness, while they're against other people, they do damage to us, particularly in relationships, in honor and in the job. Nobody honors the angry person or the bitter person or the covetous person. They tend to despise them. Uh, Immorality, all the same way, they do the same thing, right? When people know about immorality, they don't generally celebrate it. Yes, young single people will celebrate it, but I mean, 
society is large and the workplace is large. Even if they celebrate the immorality, it's still going to hurt you in your work, in your life, in the same ways. Drugs and alcohol do the same thing, right? They, they, the drunkard doesn't get much respect. The guy who comes to work stoned or who can't do work or can't work with people who can't deal with the situations because they're doing drugs, they're not respected. Their job, their finances may be hurt. And more than that, it really does damage to the health. Any sin can lead to stress as you fear being found out, you fear the consequences, you fear not being able to enjoy it anymore. All of these things come together and that produces that worldly grief in us. I've lost what I want. I've lost what I get. And the second thing that worldly grief comes from is our disappointment that we can't gratify the desires of this life. We don't enjoy our sin anymore because we've lost our friends, we've lost our job, we have no one to blame anymore, no one to hate that's nearby. I remember a certain American author saying that whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in front of a little something in my heart dies. Very hateful person. But the idea is when, when we've alienated everybody, there's nobody left near us to feel good about. And so, you know, that worldly grief comes up. We want to hurt people, and they're not there anymore. We want to blame people, but there's none there. And so when he's talking about worldly grief, he's talking about not just the godless, but really the, the godly sometimes fall into this kind of grief too. No one to blame shift on. I mentioned the destruction of health. We, we can all see what alcoholics and drug addicts do. Their health is destroyed. But think of their loss of pleasure as well. An alcoholic, one of the signs of becoming an alcoholic is it takes more alcohol to get drunk. And a small, even a small amount of alcohol that doesn't even get you to feel it is enough to give you a hangover. You know, they don't get to enjoy their sin anymore. And that's part of the body's natural defense mechanisms as you're destroying your body. It reacts more harshly. Um, many drugs are the same way. And of course, I also mentioned the stress affects our health. We don't want to get caught. We don't want to get punished. We don't want to lose access to what we love in our sin. And thirdly, the, the misery and torment of guilt. Man was created with a conscience, and that conscience is at work within us. We may try to sear our conscience. We may try to tell ourselves that up is down and down is up, good is bad and bad is good. You know, we may try to legislate that, which is happening now in America. Their guilty conscience is probably part of the problem, part of the reason they want to make it illegal to tell them it's sin. And they already passed that law in Canada, and it is technically illegal to tell a homosexual they're living in sin and need to give up their homosexuality. They haven't arrested people for that yet, but it's only a matter of time. And that comes because they, they have a conscience, their conscience is at work, and guilt torments them. And so how are you grieved? You're grieved by your guilt. And when somebody tells you about your sin, that grief comes more to the surface. And this applies to us as well. I mean, how many of us really enjoy being rebuked for sin? Being told that the thing we're enjoying is wrong. Man has a conscience. Man's conscience is still there. He might sear it, but it's still there. It's still poking him from time to time. And one of the things it pokes him with is the fear of God and the fear of hell. Man was created by God in God's image. God has left in man's soul the imprint of what is right and what is wrong and what will happen in the end. And this isn't the good fear of God and the good fear of hell, the productive fear, but really this is the fear of the wrath of God. In Revelation 6, you remember the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, 
hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation 6, 15 through 17. You know, that is knowledge that we all have. Somewhere in us, we know that God is going to bring the world to reckoning. Because not only has he said that, but I think he's put that in man's hearts, to fear him and to fear hell. And what's the main fear of this? What's the result of all of this? You know, the fear of death. People are afraid of death. Now, some have so deluded themselves that they look forward to it. You know, we mentioned Islam, where they, if you die killing a non, non-Muslim, an infidel, you get seven virgins to rape in heaven for all eternity, is their belief. And so they're happy to die, those who are deluded enough. Uh, others who believe in reincarnation, well, this life is no good, I'll hit reset, start over. I'll die and be reincarnated. And they have hope, but most people cannot sear their conscience to that point where they actually willingly die. They have to be pretty desperate and pretty grieved in their life to think death is better. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, isn't it? The sting of death, the fear of death, the fear of hell comes from sin. Worldly sorrow comes with regret. There are a few people who look back on their destroyed life and say, yes, I win. Uh, our sin causes us so many problems that we have regrets. We may work so hard to try and push those regrets out of our mind and replace them with something else, but it doesn't work. When you ask you know, rich man, how much is enough? It's never enough. Just a little more and I'll feel better. Just a little more and I'll be happy. Just a little more. And they're wrong. There's no more. And they look back at life, and what do they see? They see the people they've alienated, the the people they've destroyed, the evil they've done, and the consequences they've suffered for it. And they have regrets. And that's what worldly sorrow brings, worldly grief brings. If only I had done this or that. If only I had not done this. If only I had chosen better. If only I had lived better. If only I had worked on those relationships, if only this hadn't happened or that hadn't happened, if only it hadn't turned out this way. That's where worldly sorrow brings, and that that has a result. We've already talked about the result. The result is death. Men regret the consequences of sin, and that leads them to death. You remember the story of Judas. What did he do? Well, he was overcome with grief. And in his grief, what did he do? He took the money back to the temple, but they wouldn't take it, so he threw it in. But was that enough? He went out and he hanged himself. Think of Ahithophel. You may not remember his story. He was David's trusted counselor. And when his son Absalom rebelled, during the rebellion while David is off, you know, not wanting to fight and kill his own son, he leaves the capital Ahithophel is there counseling him, giving him good advice, and David's prayer is, you know, confound the advice of Ahithophel. And so nobody will pay attention to Ahithophel. They pay attention to the young and foolish men who bring Absalom to the grave. But Ahithophel saw that. His counsel wasn't heeded. And he had great regrets, you can imagine. And you were the trusted counselor of the king, you try to counsel his son on how to overthrow the king, and they don't have to listen to your counsel, and they do something so stupid, it's like, all right, I know the war is over, and we lost. What does he do? He goes home, he sets his affairs in order, and he kills himself. He hangs himself. You know, the, the regrets of life, the regrets of sin, lead a great many 
to kill themselves, to commit suicide, that torment of their guilt, that hopelessness to undo the results of their sin, that realization of how vain their life has been, as we've been reading about in Ecclesiastes, how vain their life has been apart from God. Judas, Ahithophel, well, Judas probably more, but Ahithophel, the guilt and the hopelessness of being able to fix the situation, suicide. Of course, sometimes that first death is a natural consequence of your sins. What happens if you abuse alcohol or drugs for too long? Your body fails, you die. Uh, many other things that we can do. You know, what happens if you're constantly stressed out about getting more or getting even, getting revenge, getting justice, getting what I want? What happens? The stress builds up over life and you suffer all kinds of health problems and natural death. Sometimes it's a legal consequence of sin. You commit murder, you get killed. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are cases of you commit treason and you die. Treason against God and you die. So worldly sorrows, worldly grief over sin, resulting you know, in our context, we're talking about sin, leads to death. The grief, the grief of what's happening or the grief of hopelessness. But what about godly grief? It says godly grief produces repentance without regret. How do we get the godly grief? Well, we can start with any of the things I've already spoken about, right? We do something evil. We realize the effect that it's had. Think of David. He slept with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. He covered it up. He goes on for a while, filling himself with other things and convincing himself that he's good. And even when he's confronted with the essentially his own story, that man should surely die. The prophet Nathan says, thou art the man. That's you I'm talking about. And then David understood. What did he do? He realized God was against him. If everybody found out about this, his soldiers might be against him. How many soldiers died to kill Bathsheba's husband? The army might be against him. His commanders might be against him. A lot of regret. But what did he do? He went and he repented. Godly grief produces repentance. We'll get to regret in a minute, but I want to think about that for a minute. The cause of godly grief. What was David's cause for grief? Yes, it might have started with some of the others, and it often does. We regret the consequences of our sin. We regret the, the life that our sin has brought us, but for the believer, ultimately, the grief is come, the godly grief is coming from grief of offending God. Think about our conversion. Right? God has renewed us. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you, and I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit within you and cause you to walk according to my statutes. We've read this many times, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. When we're born again, we're given this new nature. And this new nature is made sensible of right and wrong. You know, before we were living in denial as unbelievers. We were living in our fantasy world, thinking that good is bad and bad is good. We were filling ourselves with the pleasures of this world and trying to fill that hole that can only be filled by our Creator. But when we're finally made aware of God, we're made aware of who he is and what he is because he has changed our heart and now we have seen God. We have, we have understood God to, a, to the extent that we know we can know as a man. We know his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, and we know where we stand and we become grieved. I was reading Dutch theologian and pastor <clears throat> Wilhelmus of Breckel. He wrote a book called The Christian's Reasonable Service. Great book. It's actually a systematic theology, but it has an interesting title. 
worth enjoying and reading. But he talks about our godly grief, about our sin in this way. Now, Dutch is from German, and German, the old German had, every noun had a gender. And so he's referring to the new nature in us as she. It gets translated, so I'm just going to read it as she, but understand that that's the new nature. We might say it in English. But the translation doesn't, it's kind of long, but I want to read it because he really hits the nail on the head very well and very strongly. It says, the new nature opposes the old nature. We read about that in the Bible, that war between, the guerrilla warfare between us, between the desire for our sins. Paul talks about that quite a bit. So the new nature opposes us. She does so, first of all, uh, the new nature does so, first of all, by a heartfelt mourning and beginning grieving or being grieved. Okay. A heartfelt mourning and being grieved that she is so surrounded by sin and is made so polluted and abominable by it that this causes her to abhor, abhor herself, speaking of our personal sin. We recognize we have so much sin in our hearts and in our life and in our desires that we're left mourning, we're grieved by this abominable sin that is us. It grieves her, the new nature, that she is thereby prevented from living in sweet communion with God. That she continually acts contrary to the will of God and thus makes herself worthy of the wrath of God. Sin troubles her as a heavy burden, too heavy for her. How she wishes to be delivered from this abominable monster. With great courage, she cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul in Romans 7:24. All sorrow over other matters is as nothing compared to the evil motions, sorrow, and abominableness of sin. That's important for us to remember and note. That, that's one of the things that separates the believer from the unbeliever is, yes, we recognize all these other consequences and that may drive us to feel sorrowful for our sin. But when we think about our sin, we realize, you know, my sin is really ultimately against God. David says that, right? He, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, ruining her relationship with her husband, murders her husband. Their baby dies because of that sin. And what does David say against you and you only have I sinned, speaking to God? We start to realize that all the other parts of our sin, all the other things that we suffer for it, all the sorrows and griefs that we have because of our sin, all the things I mentioned in the first part about worldly grief, all of those seem nothing compared to the grief and sorrow of infending our God. She mourns like a dove and chatters as a swallow. She goes about mournfully and sin can even cause her to be thin in the face, meaning the health to suffer. David says, my bones were wasting away within me. Speaking of that time before he was caught and before he was forced to repent. But note, the new nature does not avoid this mourning. It seeks to increase this sorrow and to spiritualize it. She brings herself into the holy presence of the Holy Spirit, and she, as she is, we, we try to go to God as we are in the presence of the Spirit as we are. And note, she shrinks away in shame. We are afraid and embarrassed and uncomfortable even to go before God. But then she makes wholehearted confession, weeps, enlarges the sinfulness of sin, grieves and prays for forgiveness. We recognize our sin for what it is, and oh, we think, oh, it's just a small thing is what we were thinking. But when we stand before God and we think about his perfect holiness and justice and goodness and truth and our sin, and we see it as more abominable than if it were committed against us because it's committed against such a perfect transcendent God. And so we enlarge the sin. We recognize it in its great magnitude. It is not this 
little insignificant thing. We become conscious of that. We pray for forgiveness and flee to Christ, receiving him as our ransom. And with that atonement, we go to the Father and wrestle until we are justified and become conscious of peace. She, the, the new, new nature within us, thus comes into a more upright condition and becomes even more fearful of sin. For godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, which is not to be regretted. 2 Corinthians 7:10. He also adds, sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of countenance, the heart is made better. Ecclesiastes 7.3, an interesting tie-in to what we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes, where that vanity of life apart from God is such that sorrow and tears in our life is better for us than happiness, better than a glad heart, better than laughter. Why? Because it's what works that repentance in us before the before God, through the Spirit. It's what enables us then to draw near to God. Remember James' admonition, wash your hands. Draw near to God, purify your hearts. Draw near to God. The sorrow, the grief of our sin is one of the things that draws us nearer to God. And then we can have true joy. And that is of value to us. Westminster Shorter and larger catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And this verse comes into play in that. I'm going to read the larger catechism because it gives a slightly more detailed answer, as usual. Uh, Remember the shorter catechism, while it's hard for us to memorize, was for children. And the adults memorized the larger catechism, which is a little much for me. Not having a great memory. Anyway, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, gift of God, wrought in the heart of the sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, he gives he, he so grieves for and hates his sin as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. That's talking about salvation. Repentance unto life is where our salvation comes from. And the catechism, well, the, the Westminster Standards Command, commend all ministers and teachers and evangelists to, to preach that message. Without that kind of faith, there really isn't salvation. We have to really understand that hatred for sin before God, despise it, and want God instead of all the pleasures that our sin's been giving us. We want God more. And we see all the things we loved as filthy rags. Or as Paul says, rubbish. Remember, Paul called it all rubbish. He's thrown away everything so that he can follow Christ. It was of greater value than all the world. Well, that's often, that's talking about conversion, but what about after conversion? What about for us, the Christian? Well, honestly, being grieved by our own sin is not really any different. Everything a Breckle said, everything the Westminster Standard said should be true when we repent. It's not the first time we're turning back to God, but it's the same principle. That hatred for our sin, that understanding of our sin before God. As the Westminster Larger Catechism says, we're still grieved by the filthiness and odiousness of our sins. Uh, The difference being, of course, that now we really see our sin much better than we did when we were first saved. Because we've been reading the word, we've been in the word, we've been hearing the preaching, we've been studying God's word, and we draw a much greater significance to our sins, the filthiness and odiousness of them. We also grieve and hate our sin and want to turn back to God from all of them, just like when we were first saved. 
and purposing and endeavoring after a new walk with him and all his ways of new obedience, you know, all of that we should still be doing when we sense, when we come to God in repentance of our sin. So we're grieved perhaps with a worldly grief at first, but our godly grief recognizes our sin against God. And when we're not saved again, we were only saved once, like when we were saved, we need to be repentant and despising and hating that sin. Paul says, you know, I do the very thing which I hate who will rescue me from this body of death. Is godly grief without repentance, without regret? There are two words, depending on which translation you're using. They get translated repentance in this passage. Uh, the ESV, I think, calls it regret. One is regret, one is repentance. Repentance is that really hating of it and wanting to not do it ever again. Regret is more the sorrow for what has happened to you. Sorrow for the consequence of your sin. And the two are very distinct. But godly grief is without that regret, without repentance, as it may say. The ESV has regret and repent and regret, which is good. But sometimes they mix those up and make one the same word in both. Uh, we, without regret, though, we have regret for what we do, don't we? If we're going to die because of what we have done. Oh, you know, I smoked for 30 years. I knew it was wrong, 40 years. And now I've got lung cancer and... I'm going to die from this. Do we regret what we did? Yes. Do we regret the consequence? Yes. Prison, we would regret having losing our possessions to make restitution, losing our job because of what we did, um, losing damaging relationships because of our sin. Do we regret that? Absolutely. Not all relationships can be restored, particularly if the other person's an unbeliever. But even if somebody accepts your repentance and accepts you back as a brother or sister in Christ, you may have destroyed the confidence. You may have destroyed the credibility. You may not be able to do the things you used to do. You may not be able to have the relationship you had because you've proved yourself untrustworthy and you can't be entrusted. A teacher who has done something wrong with a child is probably not going to be allowed to be a teacher again. So there, we regret that kind of consequence for our sin. We have the godly grief, having offended God, but we're reconciled. That worldly grief doesn't necessarily go away. In this very chapter, Paul says back in verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a while. Now, he's not saying that there are no regrets. Some people think that's what I can have. No regrets. Nope, I don't care that I hurt you. I don't care about the damage to the relationship. I don't care if you never accept me. That's not what he's saying. We have those regrets. What he's saying is in grieving them, you know, he regretted seeing them in sorrow. We don't want to do that. How many of us want to see our children cry when we spank them for their sin? How many people want to see somebody in tears because we confront them for their sin? You know, we don't enjoy that. We regret having to do that, but we don't regret the doing of it. In our sin, we may regret the harm we did, but even in calling them on their sin, which is what Paul was talking about, we may regret seeing them sorrowful, but we don't regret what we did. We don't regret correcting them. We don't regret the grief that God brings to them, that the Spirit brings to them, because God and the Spirit use that grief to bring them to repentance, bring them to restoration with their relationship with God and hopefully bring them to restoration of their relationship with men. It brings them that, that grief that we cause them by confronting them on their sin, or the grief that we feel 
for the sins that we've done is part of what moves us and moves them to that true, honest repentance. It brings us to that endeavoring after a new obedience, that closer walk with God. It gives us greater humility before God. Remember, you know, God has told us, what, O oh man, is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Micah 6.8. It's a passage many of us have memorized. We might not always remember where it is, but we remember that passage. Well, how does it do that? Well, we've done some injustice. Now we think about God's justice and we want to be just. Goodness, love, kindness, walking humbly with God. We recognize now more than we did before that we are still sinners. Yes, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Yes, we have that relationship with God through Christ. But we have not purged the last of the sin from our lives. And so the grief that we have, we still regret. But the the result of the grief is what we don't regret, that restoring our relationship with God, our walk with him, and our, our relationship with others. If we were to contrast these two, worldly grief and godly grief, think about it for a moment. What is worldly grief focused on? Me. That's the biggest difference. Worldly grief is focused on how I feel, what I suffer, what I lose. It's all about me. And even the Christian will have that kind of worldly grief, but we need to remember we're thinking about it us, and we need to put ourselves third. Think about the person we've hurt, and think about how we have offended God. Godly sorrow, godly grief, on the other hand, is not based on me, but it is God-centered how I have offended God, how I have offended his perfect holiness, his perfect justice, his perfect goodness, his perfect truth, how I have despised his laws by transgressing them, how I have despised his authority as God by doing what I want instead of what he wants. You know, godly sorrow is sorrowful for what we have done to God. It is God-centered, whereas the worldly grief and sorrow is centered on us. The second thing we should consider if we want to compare and contrast these is the result of our grief. What does worldly grief bring? Misery and torment and death. Does worldly grief ever bring anything good? Well, there can be good from it. How many of us have known an alcoholic who gave up drinking? The grief that was caused by the destroyed relationships, by the damage to them, their, their health, by the damage to their careers, the, the, that may be enough for a godless person to want to get sober and to fix it. I knew a man once, he had been married three times already. Um, his third wife persuaded him to give up alcohol and he got sober. And they met up with his first or second wife, I don't remember, and said, oh, if he'd gotten sober when I was married to him, I'd still be married to him. A couple of years later, I said, no, you wouldn't. (laughs) Alcohol was the crutch that was holding him up, and without that, his bad personality became infinitely worse. But people will, for the worldly grief, sometimes change their life, but not always completely, not always for the best. But what they haven't done is change their relationship with God. And so it still leads to death. What death? Well, the second death, the eternity of torment in hell, where the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched. So godly grief doesn't bring us to death, but to restoration with God, with repentance towards God with restoration of relationships with God and with man and with that new endeavoring after that closer walk with God in obedience. No regrets concerning those results. No matter what I had to suffer to get there, I'm glad I got there. And we don't have those regrets that eventually lead the godless to death. 
Now in verses 11 through 16, and we don't have much time for this, so I'll be brief. We get to the Corinthians' grief. Back in verse 8 and 9, we saw that Paul had written them a letter about their sin as a church and about the sins of an individual. And we've talked about that several times. I'll just skip over it completely now. And they were greatly grieved. And their grief led them to earnestness. Well, let's read it. Verse 11. See what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you. They were eager to fix the situation. You know, they had been complacent. And now they've been grieved. They see themselves as sinning against God, destroying what the, the testimony of the church and the community. And they're grieved by what they've done and what has happened. They were eager to, he says, eagerness to clear yourselves. They, they wanted very much to clear this matter, to restore themselves as a church and as individuals with God, to be that city on a hill. It can be seen by all, that lamp on its stand. They had pretty much snuffed out the light by being a church that allowed great sin, grievous sin in it. What indignation they had. How could we allow something like this to happen to us? What fear. What is God going to do to our church? The world around us wants to kill us and has been killing us. If God doesn't come back for us, what will happen? Will God still love us as a church, or will we be cast off? Will we be spit out of his mouth like lukewarm water, Revelation says. But he says at every point, oh, and what punishment? They punished the offender, the offender came to repentance. Well, I believe the offender being talked about is the one earlier in the book where they came to repentance and he urges their restoration. Some people imagine this is a personal matter where somebody insulted Paul and Paul is angry with them, with the church for not taking his side. I, I think that's absurd. I think we're talking about that sexual immorality from First and Second Corinthians. That same matter has come up again in the letter here. Um... Paul did this for a purpose. He says, at every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. They they may not have been taking care of it. Now they're taking care of it. They're innocent. Verse 12, Paul's purpose in what he did in bringing them to grief was to stir up their faith to action. pointing out to them, you're not acting according to the faith. You're not acting as children of God. You're not acting as a church of God. You need to repent and come back to the right way. That was Paul's purpose, was to stir up their faith into taking appropriate action, fixing the problem and resolving the sin in their midst. And he did this for their recovery, for their restoration and their spiritual growth, we see in verse 12. Both the church and individuals. And that's important. That's really the purpose of church discipline, bringing about repentance, restoration, and spiritual growth. It's not about punishment. And Paul wasn't trying to punish them. He wasn't trying to condemn them. He says even in this chapter, he wanted to see them turn their hearts to God and do what was right and grow then in their faith and their practice. Now, before this point, they, they may have been lackadaisical and you know allowing the worldly activities to come into the church or maybe they were indifferent to their theology now they're much more interested they're much more careful they want to be more diligent and that was his purpose and i'm way over time but their second the second thing verse 13 to 16 i'll just summarize by saying their grief resulted in the comfort and joy of those over them in the Lord. Remember Hebrews, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13:17. Paul was groaning. They were not being repented. They were not doing what they needed to do. They were not living the way they were supposed to live. They were, as a church, stumbling and Paul was filled with grief, filled with anxiety, he says, such that he couldn't minister. He needed to go find out what was going on and, 
if necessary, fix the problem personally. And now he has been comforted and has great joy. And that was the second thing that grieving them did to them. Uh, sometimes we're of the mistaken belief that if we grieve somebody by pointing out their sins and they're in tears or they become bitter or angry or resentful, we think, oh, I have, you know, I have failed or I have sinned. Uh, we can sin in the way we call somebody repentance. Uh, we've talked about this a lot. You get in somebody's face and scream, you belong in hell, you sinner. They're not going to hear us, and that would be sinful. But if we take them aside and say, look, what, what you're doing is wrong, and they're upset or they're angry, you know, we haven't failed, we haven't sinned. We've planted the seed, and God may bring it to fruition if they're a believer, and they, their grief will turn to godly grief, and they will become repentant. If they're not a believer, it'll never go be, be, be past the, the worldly grief. And we should think about this also in our own lives. You know, we may be experiencing in our life some worldly grief. Oh, my health is bad. My relationship is bad. You know, my problem is bad. We need to think about moving that into God's realm and thinking about how God feels about what we've done, how God feels about where we are. And rather than you know, looking for a way out of our trials, use our trials to look at our heart and see what, what we, where we're remiss and work on fixing those things. Because if we can turn that worldly grief into godly grief and that godly grief into repentance and to life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know it is never pleasant to be convicted of our sins. There's no joy found in being humiliated and in suffering. But there's great joy to be found when we have humbled ourselves, when we have repented, when we have worked to make right the wrongs we have done. And so, Lord, as we think about our lives, we think about what others have said to us to try and convict us of our sins, we think about the grief in our own heart over our sin. Pray that you would help us move this into the realm of godly grief, where we see our sin against you, know that we have offended you, and seek true repentance and life, true restoration through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.